The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, you can listen to us every week, every Wednesday, 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And as you know, we archive the show at the end of the day. So I'm excited about my two guests today. Two, we're going to be talking about children today, actually, uh, from very different perspectives. Uh, my first guest is an author. Her, uh, her new book is called Mimi's Village. And she is, uh, and how basic healthcare transformed it. That's the title of the book. The, t- the name of my author is Kate Smith Millway. And, uh, this is her latest book. She's written several books and she's also co-founder of On Hen Inc., which is a not-for-profit organization that uses stories, interactive games, and downloadable classroom resources to expand children's knowledge of world issues and see how, and help them. To make a difference, so that's what we're talking about: children making a difference, and, and in particular, this book deals with uh, uh, basic health care and how uh, a village was transformed uh, by children in the United States in terms of their health care. Interesting topic. Um, and following her, following Kate, is Dr. Mary Lamia. She's a psychologist. She's a psychoanalyst, and her new book is called "Emotions: Making Sense of Your Feelings." Uh, she says, imagine having a tool that it can improve your motivation, self-awareness, social relationships, decision-making skills, self-control, and your ability to achieve your goals. She's going to tell us not only how we can do it, but how our teenagers can do this uh, by understanding their emotions and the impact it has on their decision-making. So first is Kate, Katie, actually, Katie, uh, Smith-Millway, author of Mimi's Village and How Basic Healthcare Transformed It. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. And, you know, uh, we're going to talk about the book first, but I just, uh, I'm going to mention that website again, so anybody who's listening may want to be, while they're listening to our interview, also may be wanting to go to the website, which is onehenink.org. Uh, so, Katie, tell us about the book. Do you want to start with telling us about the book or your overall, I guess, initiative or mission, which you've done in your book as well as on your website, as well as as, uh, uh, your uh, organization, One Hen Inc., to get children, to help children to become social entrepreneurs? Um, I don't want to... Why don't I why don't I start with the book and and then I can expand out into the broader vision. All right, um, great. But the book situates within an overall goal. I ha- I'm on a quest to bring uh, to kid size world issues and show and show kids how they can really play a role in um, incredibly important um, <clears throat> issues like poverty alleviation and global health, uh, food security, that sort of thing. Because all of these issues truly are global, and we do each have a role to play. Um, the current book is Mimi's Village and How Basic Healthcare Transformed It. It centers on a, a little girl. She's about 10 in a village in western Kenya near Lake uh, Victoria. 
And her little sister becomes very ill after she drinks dirty water, which is a is a chronic problem for a lot of kids in developing countries. Um, the the family um, hikes for miles through the woods at night to get to the closest village that actually has a health clinic, and there um, she gets some treatment. And the treatment actually for you know the the, the the repercussion of dirty water is is usually dysentery and diarrhea, and that is actually the number one killer of kids under five. Yeah, what it, is that statistic? Because it's huge. I saw that. I, it's astounding, and I don't think not only children but adults in the United States don't really have an awareness, or I don't think of, of the numbers of of children who die of dysentery in uh, in Africa. Yeah. So diarrhea causes one in five deaths around the world um, of kids. Um, for kids under five. Um, pneumonia causes two million deaths a year, and malaria, which is another very treatable disease, kills one child in sub-Saharan Africa every 45 seconds. So, um, you know, these are three thing, three diseases that are not a mystery at all. In fact, I think most of us in, in this country don't think of diarrhea as a disease at all. It's just an annoyance from time to time. But um, but it because it dehydrates young children, it actually takes lives. And the remedy, as Mimi and her family learns when they make it to the health clinic, is a, an 80-cent pack of oral rehydration salts. I mean, it's it's something that your UNICEF boxes, which I hope many kids will be carrying on Halloween in um, this month, uh, you know, can pay for many times over. And and so it's a very simple cure. And, and actually, as, as Mimi and her family are at the clinic, they see a lot of very simple, healthy habits that will present, pre- prevent illness and simple cures um, that uh, can take care of illness when it comes. And it really, what it does is it demystifies um, ill health, which is is really step one. I mean, knowledge that you can do something about being sick is step one. You can think about it in your own family. If you have a headache, you know, your parents suggest Tylenol. If you have tummy aches, there's other suggestions. But if you're in a in an environment where you actually don't know what's making you sick, that is actually in some ways the most lethal thing of all. So the knowledge acquires, and then with the knowledge comes vision. And the vision for Mimi and her family is maybe they could build a clinic in their own village. So the rest of the story unfolds as they attempt to do that, and you find out that it takes many hands to do something like that and some of the help comes from abroad some comes from their local mission church some comes from the government but they do accomplish they do accomplish their dream so who is reading Mimi's Village? Who is Mimi's Village for here our kids here in yeah, the United States? Yeah so so it's for it's really kids 8 to 13 in terms of reading it themselves, so it's written at that level. Um, it, it has beautiful illustrations from my illustrator, Jenny Fernandez, who's an award winner, and she's done several of my books. And uh, and so it, as a picture book, um, younger kids can be read too. Um, I know classes where the teacher will just read kind of a page a day because each page is written around a theme like, you know, danger in the water, sickness at home, simple cures, things like that, healthy habits. Kids can read just a page a day if they're younger and look at the pictures, but um, for self-reading, you, you know, you probably need to be about third grade. All right, so it really kind of runs the gamut, actually, for for our for kids here in the United States. Um, it's just the way in which you approach the book, and exactly. whether you read, yeah, read it with somebody or you can read it on your own. I think one of the things this really points out, and um, I'm always surprised that people don't know this, but you know, pu- public health is one of the. I mean, pu- our public health system, I guess, is one of the, the major or if not the major breakthrough in medicine in this country. Yeah. And it, as you say, it sounds simple, and in certain ways it is simple, but I don't think we have an awareness of that. We, That's we, right. It, yeah. And and we, I mean, we take vaccinations for granted, for example. Vaccinations, you know, um, save lives 
that you know, people don't even realize how much vaccinations have improved the quality of their life and their health um, in this country. It's just something that have, that kids do. But um, in uh, you know, in, in many developing countries, that vaccination changes your life. I mean, it gives you a chance at survival. And that, there's actually one of the one of the pages in Mimi's story is about vaccination day, where the the kids all line up and actually finally get their vaccinations. In your what what's your experience with the with the kids who read the book? Because I assume that that you you know have you know you interact well, I, with these kids. Yeah. So I find there's two things. One is that kids do you know they they realize that their pennies and dollars make a huge difference. In fact, in the back of the book, I have a profile of a, a little boy in Arizona named Austin Gutwine, who at age nine started a basketball shoot-a-thon called Hoops of Hope, and and now in his teens, he's raised two point five million dollars through kids getting a dollar a basket um, uh, for health clinics. How old is he? He was nine when he started Hoops of Hope. He's I think sixteen or seventeen now. He's got the um, but, best name. I love that name, Austin Gutwine. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> yes. Well, and there's a story of another little boy yeah. up in, uh, he's from Ontario, named Ryan Hilljack, and he, at age seven, raised enough money to buy his, to build the first, his first well in Uganda, which brought clean water to a community. He has since founded a foundation called um, Ryan's Well, and um, and he has gone on to build, I think, over 1,500 water points around the world. He's now in, in college age. But, I mean, just in, kids, I mean, it's not too young to start right now to make a difference, and a, and a bed net that prevents malaria costs $10, and, a, you know, oral rehydration salts, um, 80 cents a pack, so for $8, you can buy 100. I mean, it's really, really... Um, you know, there are lots of ways that young kids can make a difference. So, so one of the things is the kids that react to they 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 think of ways that they can make a difference, and um, another and actually there's also a story in the back of a girl of uh, a family or like some kids in a family who just participated in a World Vision healthcare kit build. They do these caregiver kit builds around the country, and so they packed a caregiver kit um, uh, for a health worker in Zambia. They put in a note of encouragement to that health worker, and then you see pictures of the health worker who received the kit, and then of a little girl who had malaria that she actually was able to go and um, and uh, you know, detect early the problem and get her to a clinic and, and save her, and then bed nets that she provided to the family to prevent malaria in the future. So you kind of see this whole cycle of how Helping Hands here equip um, helping hands abroad who actually save lives, and that and saving lives, of course, is they're saving lives. But then the I I don't know if you call it the bigger picture, but think about what it does for the future in terms of I'm sure you have obviously international relations. I mean, if you start these kids off being yeah. connected to people to other children around the world in this way, That's it, right. they are going to be far less likely to want to kill and bomb and maim them when they get to be adults and politicians. Absolutely, and you know the best the best hedge against terrorism and all all sorts of evil is actually development dollars. If you can give people a reason and a hope to want to survive, then the uh, appeal. You know, suicide bombing goes way down, and the willingness of parents to give up their children goes way down because they see a real future. I mean, you you can go to country after country, and development really um, equals peace. Yeah. So, so that's that's a big one. Now, the other thing I think kids take away from this, frankly, is healthy habits for themselves. Because a lot of things that we need to do um, in uh, Western Kenya, we need to do in any country, and it's hand washing and taking vitamins and eating your vegetables and all kinds of just really healthy ways that we can live that will prevent disease. So there's that too. And I think Mimi's dream at the end, which is 
that she could perhaps become a nurse or a doctor herself. I mean, that's the dream of many kids in this country, and and to be able to uh, to sort of catch that vision early is is a wonderful thing. So, Katie, how do you get the inspiration for each one of these books? Well, yeah. let's start with this one. So, so this one is I. So, I worked in um, in a variety of countries in Africa on and off for a decade, in my late twenties and thirties, and. Um, I, what was I actually, your background? My background is international. Uh, my background is international development. I did a um, a master's in it was actually international relations, but both a focus on developing countries. So my thesis research was in Mali, a Western African country, on a food security issue. And then I went from there to doing some consulting with organizations like World Relief and World Vision. And then I joined the staff of Food for the Hungry International, um, which. Um, which worked in 20 countries around the world, and I specifically worked in in Africa. Um, so uh, working with local teams, so always with local teams on grassroots projects around water, health, um, uh, agriculture, and um, and microfinance. And so um, that that's kind of my background. And so all these stories come directly from you know my own observations of smart things that people with very few resources were doing to help themselves and to really change lives and um this particular one is a composite so it um it every page is a real scene from something that you know I've seen or lived um but but as i said i have at the back one of the real stories it's based on um which is this story of the uh the healthcare kit that was built in massachusetts that went to zambia and then uh helped save a life over there so that's actually profiled in the back a real village health worker um is the name of it now my other stories um are actually based on individuals um so this one is a composite, and um, the story that I, I sort of launched this series with called One Hen, How One Small Loan Made a Big Difference, is about a little boy in Ghana who gets a small loan, buys a chicken, and takes flight as an entrepreneur. And he is today the largest poultry farmer in Ghana. So really inspirational to kids who want to either you know, um, raise enough money to give a small loan to an entrepreneur or themselves become a Kojo. That's the, main, the name of the character. And, and um, the the character Kojo Kwabanadarko is just an amazing person who has started a loan fund in his own country in Ghana that uh, when I last updated, one hen had helped 100,000 families get small loans and get going with small businesses. So, so that, do you say, Katie, do you stay connected to all? It sounds like you stay I do, connected yeah. to the kids and the family. He's got this whole global family going yeah. on. He's, I mean, Kwabanadarko is just an amazing person. He, he was the chairman of an organization called um, Opportunity International, which is based in Chicago when I first met him. And... Um, um, when I heard his story, I was looking. I wanted to start writing about um, world issues for kids. I'd done some fantasy books for kids, uh, one fantasy book for, for kids before that, and my publisher, Kids Can Press, had said, you know, you wrote for adults on sustainable development. Can you write for kids on sustainable development? And I thought, you know, I should. So I'd been looking for a story, and when I heard his, I thought, this is fantastic because it starts very small, where most kids are today, but it gets really big, and that's inspiring. Um, and so, yeah, he is, I mean, that, that particular book had grew into what is this organization you mentioned earlier on, One Hen Inc., and it actually creates social entrepreneurship curriculum um, around financial literacy and economics that is being used now in schools, um, late elementary and middle schools across the country and around the world. I'm actually going to China in February to work with a school in Shanghai that's doing One Hen curriculum right now, and there's schools in Oman and in Uganda and lots of other countries that uh, come to the website site and download resources and use them. So that's so really become anyone a Anyone listening who wants to do something or, or wants to get involved, what, what would they do right now? I mean, just go to the website. Yeah, go to onehandinc.org, and um, you'll see there, there is, you'll, you'll see actually, you know, 
just links to um, the onehen.org website, which is the learning site that goes with that particular. Each of my books has a learning site that goes with it. So onehen.org is the learning site that supports OneHen, and there are downloadable free lesson plans um, under the teacher tab. There's games kids play on that site, um, and they learned beads for playing the games, and they can then invest those beads in a virtual entrepreneur's market. And we have a fund that for every bead invested, it triggers, um, you know, it adds a penny to triggering a real loan to a real entrepreneur in Africa. So I think we've moved, we've moved over $50,000 worth of loans out to Africa through the website. So that's a fun way to get involved just by playing computer games, which kids, you know, are doing anyway by and large. Um, but beyond that, there's a lot of hands-on projects they can do. And the curriculum itself is a business building curriculum. So the schools that are using it, the kids get loans from their teachers, and they're usually lines of credit to work at, to buy uh, materials from an in-store, um, an in, or an in-classroom store, and make products like keychains or greeting cards or bookmarks, and then they sell them, pay back their loan with interest, uh, usually 10% interest, so it's typically a $10 loan and a dollar interest, and then they actually vote on where to give their proceeds, and in the um, and, and, and many of them vote to fund an entrepreneur. So many of them go online. On the one hand site, there's links to lots of um, different uh, microfinance sites. The Opportunity site is a great one. Uh, World Vision Micro is another good one. And, um, and you can choose an entrepreneur and help fund their loan, and then you get reports on how they're doing. And so a lot of students choose, a lot of schools choose to do that, but they can choose any charity. And so you get this virtuous cycle going where kids are learning from those in developing countries, they're becoming entrepreneurs themselves, and then they're helping someone else in a developing country and uh, and so that's kind of fun there's, there's well, a this neat is like you know katie I'm, this is like i i don't even know if i should make the comparison but it's like uh, a zillion steps up from when we used to play monopoly and <laughs> learn how to buy and sell real estate i guess yeah you're yeah, right we, we've made a well, lot of progress when and, i hear you talking and I mean, the thing is, kids are naturally entrepreneurial. I mean, yeah. late, late elementary, it's a time to catch kids, particularly in uh, urban environments where a lot of dark forces set in in high school and pull them in directions that don't lead to high school. Yeah, well, they're buying and selling drugs. I mean, they might as <laughs> right? But uh, what, you do, what you see in sixth grade, if you do the One Hen program, is actually, even if there's no history of employment in your family, you can start any little business and you can make money. And you probably make a lot more money than buying and selling drugs. I mean, there's been studies of how little money people make on that and then they end up in jail or shot nonetheless and you'll be a lot healthier yeah yeah that's you know this is like such an amazing first of all the website and as you're talking to me one of my son's girlfriend is a teacher outside of boston i know i think you live in boston i do yeah yeah and i'm thinking i have to get this information i don't know whether she has it or not but if she doesn't she really needs to see this that'd be terrific yeah there's an abc abc did a clip that followed the money from one school that was doing the one hint program all the way to the entrepreneur in ghana that received the loan and that's on the website that's on the onehin.org website. Um, it's also on the onehin Inc., which is the corporate website. So that that can that can get teachers, you know, kind of minds minds turning if she takes a peek at that. Um, I was Kate, where that, did you where did you come from? Because I, you know, I I mean, you said you got a degree in international relations, but I yeah. assume there was a lot that happened before then. I mean, you must have grown up in a family where yeah. uh, social entrepreneurship was something that obviously was was valued or, uh, you know, what kind of a Well, you know, it's interesting is my mom was social and my dad was the entrepreneur. So yeah. we, the, the um, there was always, you know, my my mom was always doing March of Dimes drives and all kinds of things that, that we would as kids help her with. Um, my dad was a was a businessman, but he was also, he also ran junior, helped found junior achievement. Um, the city I grew up in was in, was Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. I've been and there. 
You've been there. It's yeah, beautiful. It's, beautiful. it's beautiful. one of the prettiest cities in the world. Oh, Earth. it's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and and so my dad was, you know, and my dad was always like inventing little things and, you know, uh, starting having little ideas to start businesses on the side and things like that. So I think I had that in my DNA, um, and it it all sort of came together um, when I started doing um, when I started. Uh, working in an international environment and seeing how much just a little bit of investment, how far it could go. Um, the um, I, I went to Stanford University as an undergrad and um, I was an right English major, so this is hope for all English majors. <laughs> I don't know what they're going to do next. Uh-huh. Um, and then, but but when I was there, I got involved with the Stanford Committee on Hunger and worked with the United Farm Workers um, my senior year a little bit, and that really got me, you know, opened my eyes up to just. Um, how many people live off just you know a little bit of land, and even at that, aren't aren't making it? And actually, we didn't talk about my second book, but it's called The Good Garden: How One Family Went from Hunger to Having Enough. And that one um, focuses in on a, a girl, um, and the book her name's Maria Cecilia, uh, or sorry, Maria Luce, but in reality, her name was Maria Cecilia, who helped save her family farm, and she. Um, through a teacher who was like the Johnny Appleseed of Honduras and would, would build school gardens with all his schools and teach them um, how to compost and terrace and basically use their heads, hands, and hearts to make their land um, produce, even if it was kind of crummy soil and on a you know steep pitch and they didn't couldn't afford fertilizer. He, he showed them how to use the garbage in their yards to make compost and how to terrace to get flat land out of you know hillside and use marigolds to repel insects and just all kinds of things. And these kids would go back and share it with their families and this whole kind of rebirth of the hillsides of Honduras came out of it. So that book um, is, you know, again, another true story but based on this one one family and I did the biography of the teacher back, you know, 20 years ago as one of my adult books and so I was able to take this slice out of his life when he was working, you know, in a rural area with some kids and turn that into a kid's book. So that, you know, that's another form of entrepreneurship, if you will. Um, yeah, well, as a social worker, I'm thinking, I mean, all the stuff you're doing in terms of feeding people and health care and all the very, you know, tangible, specific things that have happened from what you, your work, but think about what it does, and you know, as you're telling me these stories about what it does to families and villages and how it brings people together and feeling good feelings of self-esteem and, you know, wanting to learn more and go to school. I mean, it's just kind of has this incredible well, yeah, rippling real- effect. There's a real hierarchy. I mean, without clean water, you can't be healthy enough um, to go to school. Without without um, food in your belly, it's hard to learn. Without um, you know, sort of the basics of primary health care, where you're you know vaccinated and um, you know healthy enough day by day to really um, make it to school, you're you're not going to be acquiring learning. And then and then you actually do need the school resources there to get the skills and the learning to go on and start a business. So I you know, I think of it often as the five fingers of development whereby you've got clean water, you know, food security, primary health care, education and then some kind of economic um, empowerment that lets you um, you know, start a small business or um, create a service, that sort of thing. And I'm trying to take kids through those fingers in my book. And well, show them and, how they can plug in and 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 be on you know have economic empowerment themselves. I mean, I started with the fifth finger because I think kids can really relate to that. Yeah, I, it's um, 
what do you call them, the five fingers of development. Also, you can't do, if you don't have clean water, start with just water. I mean, your brain doesn't yeah. work properly, so you can't do any of the other stuff. And I learned something just a few years ago. Um, obviously, you know this, but maybe my audience doesn't know this, or the listeners, that, you know, clean water, I mean, particu- not particularly, but specifically, I should say, for young girls, um, when they're menstruating and they don't have clean water uh, and they they don't have uh, maxi pads or they don't have the access to those kinds of things, then they can't go to school, they can't go to right. work, and they end up actually uh, dropping out of school because of that. And when I tell people that, they're like, oh, my God, I never really thought about yeah. that. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, getting girls in a place where they can go to school consistently is huge. And, the, and, and female literacy is the highest, cor- you know, increasing female literacy is the highest correlation with um, decreasing um, uh, over, you know, um, population, overpopulation mm-hmm. issues, and also um, decreasing a host of, you know, a host of sort of um, ills. Um, because the more that women are educated, I mean, it's really the women that tend to look after the kids and make sure the women and the moms are the ones that have this vision to get their kids to school. And I, um, and for, so if you go, you know, flip over to the microfinance finger of development, um, more than 80% of loans are going, small loans are going to women who are really working and their, their dream usually is to get their kids to school. I know. I mean, I, I've met I've met uh, fruit sellers in Nairobi whose kids are now at the University of Nairobi, and they've done it by you know small loans to buy bulk vegetables and fruit and sell it piece by piece in a market, and uh, you know and eke out eke out tuition. Yeah, how when you you talk about women are the ones who and it doesn't surprise me who are more engaged in doing these kinds of things. What is the response of the men? I mean, do the the, the heads of the household? I'm putting that in quotation. Yeah. Uh, are they threatened by you? Well, you know, there's a great book that's been written called Half the Sky. I don't know if you've... Um, I don't know it, no. Shelley Wu Dunn and uh, Nick Kristoff, who's a New York Times columnist, are the authors. And they went around and they interviewed um, women um, from in developing countries um, who are pretty much oppressed in situation after situation, but, but with a view toward talking to ones who'd gotten out of the oppression and how they'd done it. And many of them told stories about how when they got a small loan and started a business, their husband began to really respect them, and they got to have more voice in affairs because they were earning money. So as opposed to it, um, you know, kind of disenfranchising or splitting it from, it actually seems to be a way for women to gain power within the family and, and sometimes, you know, get their husbands involved with the business as well. Now, it's not to say some of these loans aren't going to men and men are having businesses too, but, but there's just tremendous amount of data that shows, you know, kind of 80 cents on the dollar a woman earns goes to the kids and the family, whereas it's like 30 cents on a dollar for men. So, in other words, maybe the repercussions are that maybe some of these men feel they don't have the burden of having to take care of, be the only ones to take care of the family financially yeah. or the children. Yeah. But it becomes more of a family affair. That's, I think that's true now. I mean, it also does empower women if they're in a, a really bad situation. I mean, it gives them the economic means to get out of that situation. So, so I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's lots of stories on both sides. But, um, and, and you know, the other thing is, you know, women, there's a terrible, terrible um, repercussion from the prevalence of, of child marriage in a number of developing countries whereby girls get a, um, this is another health issue, it's, um, it's a fistula issue where they, they um, 
they actually leak urine and are shunned and put away because they because of this. And so, so these there's like all these kids, these girls that need to find their own livelihoods, or they are, are really just made pariahs and shunned and beggars. And so, um, the, you know, the other piece is to to give them operations to fix it. So there's hospitals that have been set up to, you know, reclaim these girls, but also, you know, a lot of a lot of the small businesses are creating ways and means for um, girls in the world who otherwise would be without any kind of support um, to start their own businesses and support themselves. And that's huge. That's just huge. And it's not just it's not just the victims of child marriage, but it's also victims of the sex trade and victims of um, child slavery. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, horrible things that are happening to kids in lots of countries um, that, uh, you know, helping them find uh, really wholesome means yeah, to support themselves, yeah, that kind to support of themselves can become a run to daylight. That's, and last question, because we've got a couple minutes left. What has this done for you? I mean, I'm listening to you. Here's a lady who's changing the world, kind of not one person at a time, one country at a time, uh, <laughs> you know, with with your organization, your books, your, uh, you know, you you seems to me you're just sort of, how does it make you feel that you've done this, Katie? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's made me really busy, and I think it's a constant challenge just to keep my life balanced because I have three kids of my own that still need their mom. And um, and I've got, you know, I work for an organization called the Bridgespan Group. We, we advise nonprofits and philanthropy. So I've got, you know, I've got a lot of responsibilities um, elsewhere, but it has become an amazing source of joy in my life. And and I know that's why I find the energy and the time to keep pushing forward because um, when I, you know, when I just have one kid come up to me and say, I mean, as this has happened, you know, I'm I'm from Ghana and I'm in this school and I read your story and all of a sudden I felt like I could talk to kids in my school about, you know, the, about my country and um, or, you know, I, you know, I read one hen and now I've started a lemonade stand or some kind of cookie business and I'm earning money and I'm investing and helping others. I mean, we get story every every week I get some story from some kid or some school that just makes my heart leap. And so it just, you know, it really really makes it feel very worthwhile and that we're creating. I mean, the other the other thing that makes me incredibly um inspired and motivated is that we pre and post test the kids in the one hen program and we see a doubling of business math comprehension in this kind of 16 session program between before and after we see kids about 80 percent of kids feeling confident that they could start a business and we've seen up to five-fold increase in kids believing they should give back if they uh if they actually do you know succeed and 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 earn Money and that you know, if we can get a generation who who defines success not only as personal but also sharing and helping the next person, I mean, what a wonderful, what a, what a different world we would yeah, have. Then you have done your job. Well, you are doing your job. We have to say goodbye. We have to. I have to give my next guest a chance to speak as well. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. You're just. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I can use all these uh, superlatives, but I guess my suggestion is go out first of all and get your your new book, Mimi's Village and How Basic Healthcare Transformed It. Go to the website site onehenink.org and you'll get all kinds of information uh, and connections and uh, to see what Katie Smith Millway is doing and continues to do. Thank you. Thank you. Can just continue your work. All right. Thanks a lot, Kathy. Yeah, great. Bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. We're going to um, uh, take a short break now, but uh, coming up next is clinical psychologist, and she's also a psychoanalyst and an author, Dr. Mary Lamia, and her new book is Emotions, Making Sense of Your Feelings. I'm Catherine Zotz, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, We'll be back in a minute. 
sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McClune will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. For back, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And as most of you know, you can listen to us every Wednesday live. We're live right now from 10 to 11, which is Eastern Time. But if you don't get a chance to do that, we archive the show at the end of the day. So my next guest, clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst, Dr. Mary Lamia. Her new book is Emotions, Making Sense of Your Feelings. Uh, She says, imagine having a tool that can improve your motivation, your self-awareness, social relationships, decision-making skills, self-control, and your ability to achieve your goals. Uh, so she's going to tell us how to do that, and obviously that's uh, uh, what she talks about in her book. She's also She was also a, uh, a host for Radio Disney Kid Talk for 10 years and writes a blog for psychologytoday.com. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on. Dr. Lammy, and I'm going to call you Mary, it's easier. That's good. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Okay, so emotions making sense of your feelings. You know, before you and I got on the air, and I think this is a good intro to your whole book and, and to what we're going to talk about, um, we're afraid of our feelings. And, and uh, yes, in, in your book you discuss teenagers being afraid of their emotions, and but as adults we're afraid of our, our emotions, and we're always trying to get rid of our emotions, right? Whether we, you know, self-medicate, whether we take drugs, alcohol, uh, pharmaceuticals, and uh, your premise is, you know, emotions are good for us. They lead us to making, they can lead us into making really good choices and good decisions for ourselves. Actually, they do lead us. And and what's so interesting to me is uh, 30 years ago, there was very little focus or research on emotions. We, we used to think that they interfered with our thinking. They got in the way. And we paid more attention to symptoms, but not how those symptoms resulted from emotions that were disordered or misunderstood. And emotions emotions will lead you where you need to go because of what they're designed to do. 
And so it's very important not to interpret your behavior when it, you know, as though it's disordered or something's wrong or you're depressed when in fact it may just be due to an emotion that's activated. Probably the best example and, and one example where people will medicate their emotions rather than pay attention to them is uh, sadness. <clears throat> when you think about it, every single emotion has a purpose. An emotion will direct your attention. That's, that's how we're designed. We're designed so that if our brain thinks we need to pay attention to something, it will trigger an emotion. And that emotion directs your attention toward that thing. If you hear a noise, you will, you will go toward that thing. It actually uh, creates, might create anxiety or fear, but you'll direct your attention. It, emotions will motivate your, your behavior. They'll protect you, and, and they will help you reach your goals. So when you think about something like sadness, for example, let's say you're in love, you get dumped, you're really sad, uh, you think you're depressed, but really just the emotion of sadness is triggered. What does sadness tell you as an emotion? Well, sadness tells us to accept reality. What you wanted isn't there for you anymore, and you have to accept this reality, so pay attention. It will motivate your behavior because it, it actually makes you realign your goals if you pay attention to it, and it'll protect you. It makes you cautious. It makes you slow down. It makes you observe yourself. Uh, sadness can make you very introspective if you think of all the love songs and poems and stories that are written by people who are sad. Um, it, it really does make you introspective. But it doesn't tell you to drink or t- take medications or do things to hurt yourself to get rid of it. See, so often we're trying to get rid of those emotions instead of saying, what are they telling us? I want to stop you there because, you know, the sadness, as you say, it directs us into thinking about what happened to us and, and, and you know, and then making other choices and deciding what we're going to do or whatever it happens to be. But the thing that comes up I'm thinking about is, is loss. And obviously if someone breaks up with you, that's a loss. If someone dies, that's a loss. I mean, we're constantly dealing with loss. And, you know, sadness is associated with loss. And I think one of the things, particularly culturally, I want you to address this in the United States, we don't like, as Americans, we don't like to feel that sadness associated with any kind of loss. We're always trying to cover it up um, to pretend that it doesn't exist. Well, And that's not a good thing. As well, our emotions are bad. Yeah, our emotions. Well, let me ask you this. What about... What's the what happens when we cover it up? I mean, you just described what happens, the positives of accepting the sadness, feeling the sadness, and, the, and then that, you know, then we can go on. Uh, what happens when we cover it up? What, when we, what is when it? we cover, yeah. when we try to cover up our emotions or disguise them, we're actually negating the kind of information that they can give us. Or we're triggering other emotions in order to cover up the emotions. For example... Uh, people who cut themselves when they're really sad as though it releases the emotion. At least that's what most people say who cut themselves. Well, it doesn't really release anything. What happens is that if you cut yourself, you activate another emotion. You might activate surprise or shame or guilt or anxiety, but you you aren't really releasing anything. You're just activating a new emotion to cover it up. But what about Dr. Lamb? Let's take uh, one. I mean, cutting is fairly extreme, um, uh, maybe less extreme than than we'd like to think. But um, drinking a bottle of wine? Well, let's just <laughs> that's yeah, that's very common. But let's well, let's talk about you know. I just recently and 
had a friend, uh, a best friend, who I had known, have known since she was, we were nine years old, and she died of ovarian cancer mm. within six months. It was a huge loss for me. I think about it every day. It really makes me sad. Um, I think one of the things that that others try to do is to kind of. Um, I don't know what the word is for that. You know, kind of whitewash it. You know, well, just it, you, not, you don't feel bad. Um, I think that's the initial reaction. You have to get on with whatever you have to get on with. But oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that yeah. because it's it's so important in life that we recognize grief. Now, technically, grief is not an emotion. It's made up of uh, emotions of sadness and even agony. Uh, grief is more. Is longer lasting than an emotion. It's more of a uh, like a a mood. Grief is a process, a result of of dealing with loss. But it's so important because uh, grief. People generally think that grief uh, happens, and you you go through certain stages, sort of you know the, the denial and anger and all of that. And stage theories don't take into account the triggering of emotional memories. We have emotional memories in our brain that constantly get triggered, and they always get triggered with grief and and loss. So let's say you're at a place and you remember having coffee there with your friend or someone reminds you of her. Emotional memories get triggered, and it brings up your grief all over again. Grief is a lifelong process. You don't go through stages and then get rid of it. And often people think, well, I should be over it by now. You know, it's been a while, but that's just not true. Grief is lifelong, and our emotional memories are constantly triggered. The trick is knowing what to do when these emotional memories are triggered because your brain is actually saying to you, remember this person. It's not telling you to forget. It's asking you to remember. So it's important when those emotional memories get triggered that you remember uh, good things, bad things all the things about that person that are coming up for you at the moment, and then your your brain will let them go. But if you try to push them aside and cover them up, that just doesn't work. Yeah, and I think another step to that is if, uh, and not just in my case, but when you're talking about losing someone in death and uh, other, pe- other people, uh, when you bring that person up who has died, uh, don't want to talk about it. They feel, tend to feel very uncomfortable, like, move on, let's move on, let's not talk about death and dying and loss. And so one has to, you know, because even if, even if I'm enlightened, the rest of the family or friends aren't necessarily enlightened in the same way, and they don't oh, want to talk about it. That's such a yes. good example of emotion avoidance, yes. That sometimes people are afraid of their emotions and afraid that if they feel what they are feeling at the time or if they acknowledge those feelings that somehow they'll be overpowered by them. That's another reason why I wrote the book is just to recognize that emotions are such a a natural part of who we are and they evolve to help us not to hurt us. Uh, You know, and we've been talking about sadness. I want to go on to one of the other emotions that you talk about in the book and um, guilt, because that's a, you know, that's a, that's a feeling that I think all, uh, that I, all of us experience guilt. And you say, I guess one of the things you say is that guilt, and I want you to explain this, guilt helps you to maintain your relationships. What does that mean? Yes, you know, the, the 
emotion of guilt alerts you not to behave in a way that might breach a social bond or a relationship in general. We have guilt for very good reason because it's a social emotion that helps you to correct or repair a relationship. So if you do something that hurts another person, you will experience guilt because your brain is saying to you, you're distancing yourself from this person and I'm going to motivate you to relieve your guilt by helping you to restore the relationship. And so if you uh, reattach to that person by apologizing or whatever you need to do, um, you maintain your social bond. Now, unfortunately, we as mental health professionals have worked very hard over many years to help rid people of their guilt by making them believe that guilt is a bad emotion rather than a good one. You shouldn't be feeling guilty about this or that. Yeah. Let's fact, give an example. I always like the example. Give it, you know, give us Oh, I gave you your relationship example. Give me one from you. <laughs> um, if you if your relationship doesn't give you what you need, um, some people believe it's okay to uh leave that relationship, leave your family, uh pay attention to your own needs only. Uh, I'm not feeling happy. I have three kids. I have a wife. Ha- you know, this is just not a happy situation, so I really need to go on with my life. And I, I need not feel guilty about it. Yes. Now, I mean, that's an <laughs> example where we've taught people to be narcissistic or selfish. But, but guilt is a good thing. It, it maintains relationships, uh, and we're supposed to have it. And I blame us, mental health professionals, for uh, helping people leading people to believe that they shouldn't be feeling guilty when, in fact, guilt is a good thing. Well, is it all or nothing, feel guilty or not feel guilty, or what's in between? Oh, yes. I mean, guilt can be extreme, too, where you can feel guilty about everything and things that are not your fault. And I think that was the the purpose of of trying to help people with their guilt, is that there were so many people who felt guilty about things they didn't have to feel guilty about, that they were plagued by their guilt. And that's that's one extreme, but the other is when you don't feel guilty, and yeah. and not feeling guilty if you hurt someone or hurt your family or steal from a friend or, or something like that is, I mean, how are we going to have a society if we don't feel guilty? Yeah. So we really have to take a look, all of us, when we feel guilty, how, why we're feeling guilty, and, and question, you know, where that emotion is coming from, rather than, as you mentioned, as we mentioned earlier, um, taking medication or overeating, over-drinking, over whatever we do to get rid of uh, the feelings. All of the social and self-conscious emotions help maintain order in relationships, you know, shame, embarrassment, guilt, and even pride. You meant you say that anxiety. Let's talk about anxiety because uh, I don't know anyone who doesn't feel anxious. <laughs> and uh, anxiety can improve creativity, productivity, and the quality of your work. How does it do that for us? Oh yeah, I I claim that anxiety is your friend, and it really is our friend if we use Convince it Convince us that anxiety is our friend, Doctor. <laughs> anxiety feels like an uncertain threat. You know, anxiety is is different. Uh, from from fear. Fear gives you an urge to defend yourself, and anxiety just feels like an uncertain threat, and it creates arousal in your body. And and what happens when we feel 
when we're when we're anxious is we place that anxiety in the context of our current concerns. For example, if you begin to feel an uncertain threat in your body, uh, you will find a, a worry to pin it on. But anxiety is created as an emotion to give you the potential to take action. Anxiety actually is an emotion that will sharpen your focus and help you think on your feet and energize you. So, All right, here's an example. Put this okay. in the context of, for instance, uh, um, uh, going to the doctor and you have, uh, you know, let's say you have, uh, you know, you're concerned about some kind of a health issue, okay, uh, and you're anxious about it. Um, it. How does the anxiety help you to get through go to the doctor or get through whatever you have to get through in terms of making the appointment maybe. Um, go ahead. Okay, so how does this this energy you have from feeling anxious about seeing the doctor, how can you use it to your advantage rather than to your disadvantage? And what happens often is when people feel anxiety, they get immersed in their anxiety and they don't ask themselves, why Why is that emotion activated by my brain? What is it telling me to do? What is it directing me to do? And is it correct for the situation or is it a little bit exaggerated? Or did my brain consider some past situation or some other situation or a situation with a friend when it activated this emotion in me? Is it letting me know something that I'd prefer to ignore? So you ask yourself all those kinds of questions and say, how can I use my anxiety to help me focus because it is an emotion of focus? So I'm going to write a list of all the things I want to ask the doctor. I'm going to use this energy, this nervous energy, to make my list, to focus my attention. What do I need to know? And what am I worried about? And and so if you think about what you're worried about, and why why that anxiety may have been triggered, that can also provide you some insight, too. It has nothing to do with going to see the doctor. It may have to do with, you know, uh, thinking that you have an illness that a, a friend had or thinking that uh, something bad is going to happen, and, and why are you thinking that at the moment? What are you really worried about? Yeah, so it really helps you to clarify what you're going to do, you know, think, making responsible decisions about what you need to do, as you say, write out a list for the doctor, whatever it happens to be. So how does this fit into the very popular, and I have a lot of people on my show talking about this, like mindful meditation, because they say when you feel anxious, you know, you wake up <laughs> in the middle of the night, in the morning, you, you should you meditate, oh. and then you'll get rid of the anxiety. And, and, you know, meditation is such a good thing to help people center themselves. Now, if you use it to sort of figure out what your anxiety is trying to tell you, that's fine. But if you want to get rid of it, that's another thing. You don't want to get rid of an emotion. You want to figure out how this emotion is informing you. Maybe an example is like the nervous energy you you might have if you're going to run a race. You might have a lot of nervous energy. That's anxiety. And that you know, stress and tension, that bodily response to anxiety helps you run faster. It helps you direct your attention. And the same is true intellectually when you have anxiety if you could learn to use it. It could make you fall down on the street like a blob and not want to run the race. Or or it could just energize you. So it's a matter of using it. Why do you think it's so important, you know, all of the things we've been talking about in the past half hour, uh, to specifically address 
this issue of feelings to teenagers because that's what you, you do do that in the book and you are talking to teenagers which and to us too. It applies to adults as, as well. But why so important for teenagers to realize this, that they need to um, experience their feelings and, and, and not try to push them aside? Well, I think it's true of everybody on the face of the earth. I also wrote a book for uh, preteens on emotions to help them as well. I think we, we need to start with young children and teach them how to identify an emotion, you know, to name that emotion, to understand that that emotion is giving you some information, you know, and figure out what is that emotion trying to tell me and to help a child or a teen, you know, direct their attention toward that and reach their goals in that way, and they and they can. Um, even a, a silly thing like, uh, let's say you have a child who procrastinates. Procrastination is a big issue, uh, but but it's not necessarily a bad thing. That if a, if a child could understand that they need a deadline in order to create anxiety in their body in order to make them complete the task, they can understand their whole process. Or there are some children who feel very, very anxious when they get an assignment and they have to do it right away. And that helps motivate them because they can't stand having something on their plate. Just understanding how your emotions work for you or what what loneliness tells you or uh, when you're when you're sad and what that means. If children know how to interpret their emotions and use them wisely, it gives them a great advantage in life. You know, how do we do that? I mean, how can we, into, I, I guess my next question is maybe just as a therapist myself or a former therapist, uh, you know, uh, what about when children or teens or preteens are dealing with parents who aren't able to do that themselves? It's difficult for them to impart this information to their kids. Which, oh, that's why I wrote this book for yeah. young adults. I'm hoping that parents yeah. will read it too. But, but even things like, let's say your child comes home and, and says, um, I, I sat on somebody's chocolate bar on the bench and I got, you know, I'm so embarrassed. Everybody was teasing me all day. You know, embarrassments make us feel terrible. I mean, whether you're a child or an adult. And and yet if a, a parent can convey, look, you know, you, if that an embarrassment was your fault, which most embarrassments are not your fault, um, it, it makes you regret your behavior and it allows you to sort of Try to do better or not do that thing again. I mean, your embarrassment's telling you something. It's saying, oh, my goodness, you know, be careful next time. I think a great example of this is, and we only have a couple more minutes left, would probably be President Obama, who last time I think embarrassed himself in his debate, which motivated him, whatever you think of the debates, to do a, 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 a stellar job this time. Thank so, you, Catherine. That's a great I, example. <laughs> that's a great example. Yes, emotions are motivating, and if you listen to them and let them inform you rather than make yourself fold, then they will tell you what you need to do. Uh, well, this, I mean, it's, our, our, uh, our interview has been very helpful to me personally. I know it has to, been to, as to my uh, listeners as well. Um, 
want to mention the book one more time, Emotions, Making Sense of Your Feelings, which is available, bookstores everywhere online. And I, and, uh, I mean, we can go, you blog for psychologytoday.com, so do you blog every day, every week? Can we, uh, I try to blog as often as possible, and, um, the, the blog on psychology today is intense emotions and strong feelings, and I, and I blog a, a whole lot of topics right down to, uh, the emotional reasons why baseball players spit. I think the last blog was Deconstructing Lust. There's a lot on um, how emotions will help you make decisions. And, uh, I'm going to Deconstructing Lust. You can stop there. <laughs> <laughs> how you can deconstruct lust. I, 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 I like that. Do we want to do that? Well, that's a whole other... <laughs> whole other topic. I was going to say, in 30 seconds, I don't think you can answer that. Well, but you know what, but people need to understand the difference between what is lust, what is love, and what does lust really mean, and how does that come from unconscious memories in our brain that trigger emotions. Right. Well, we're going to end this on the emotion of lust, lust which I like. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Mary Lamia, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to have you. Thank you. Yeah, have a good day. You too. Uh, we are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. As I said, listen to us every week, every Wednesday, 10 to 11, live, and we archive the show at the end of the day. Have a, uh, a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.